You're listening to Special Education Matters, a regular podcast about things that matter in special education. I'm your host, Michael Boll, and I am the proud father of an 18-year-old boy with autism. I just keep asking questions. Those words come from Sandy Shove, an advocate in Santa Barbara, California, when asked how she heads into early meetings with school districts. Sandy brings her experience as a parent to a young adult child with autism and over 13 years' experience to her work. She shares her thoughts in our podcast today. Enjoy the conversation. Sandy Shove, thanks so much for joining me on the program today. My pleasure. Well, you're hanging out in beautiful Santa Barbara, California, and let's start off with what are the things, let's say somebody was to call you up on the phone and needed some help uh, as a parent for a child with special needs. What sort of services would you provide that person, or what could you tell them you could offer? Well, again, everything that I do is very individualized to the case, so I provide whatever individual services each family or parent or student needs. So my services might range from just informing them as to what their rights are and helping them better understand how to engage and participate in the process, right up through writing letters for their um, consideration and signature, uh, communicating with their school district representatives on their behalf, attending IEP meetings with them, assisting them in understanding all of the assessment reports and documents that they receive, connecting them via my own uh, professional network to other experts in various fields, psychologists, neuropsychologists, speech pathologists, occupational therapists, and so on. And, and so when like a parent contacts you, is there sort of a typical range or tip? I don't know. I, I try to say, think about it. Do they contact you because they're, oh my gosh, I've tried and now I'm desperate and confused and it's a disaster or is it just more of a people looking for some initial early answers or maybe it's just all over the place? I get a little bit of everything. I think the majority of the calls I get in, and this last week or two is really representative. I've had five contacts in the last month from families out of the blue, brand new families, who either got my name uh, from another parent that I've worked with or have found me online or through other means, who have said, Things are going very badly for my child. I'm very concerned. I don't believe that my school is addressing all of my child's needs appropriately, and I need your help. And there are various levels of urgency with that. Um, The ones that are hardest are the ones where the the parent calls and says, I have a meeting day after tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Can you come to the meeting with me? And, of course, the answer is generally no, because that's not enough time to familiarize myself with what's gone on and to review right. records with parents and get a sense of what what is even happening with the student and their educational situation. The better ones are when they either feel that they're coming into a season where they don't quite understand what's going on, or uh, perhaps they're, they're at the very beginning Somebody has said something about their child needing uh, services or needing to be assessed, or they may have taken their child for private assessment, and they're just now beginning to understand that there's a need that has to be addressed Mm. in a unique way. Those Mm. are the easier ones because things haven't gone off the track. Uh, I see. Yeah. Um, and, and so I can get in there with the parent kind of on the early stages and help them understand how the system works, how the what their rights are, 
how to communicate about their rights, what are good patterns of behavior and habits about record keeping and so on that they should probably begin from the beginning. Um, and then I can help them kind of come into the process in a more empowered and, and self-assured way. The hard ones are where things have gone badly and maybe gone badly for a while. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of loss, loss of trust, loss of confidence that the school cares or understands what their child needs. Um, those are harder because then you have sometimes multiple miscommunications or misunderstandings to kind of untangle and get to the heart of what's really going on with a student and help them come to understand what their student needs and how best to to work within the system to get that. Sure. So if somebody works with an advocate out the gate, then, you know, that advocate's going to say, well, here's the sort of a process that you follow and here's how you develop relationships and here's the documents you need to, to keep. But so I'm curious then on the other end, when you're working with the parent who calls you up and things are already very difficult, maybe they've yelled and screamed at the teachers or something like that. Is it possible right. to repair those things and bring it back to oh, sort sure. of normal? And how, okay, how do you do that? Oh, sure. Tell us about well, that. And, and again, every, every situation is different. And, and often you're working with parents who have their own issues or, or disabilities or needs that they mm-hmm. may or may not fully understand themselves. So if you have a parent who has difficulty communicating in writing and they've communicated almost exclusively over the phone or face-to-face, there may not be a good document history to kind of track along with what has happened. And so they may believe that they have communicated a lot of things to the school, but there's no paper history to kind of track and, and demonstrate that. And and so they go into meetings believing that everybody already knows what they've talked about, and maybe mm-hmm. that isn't the case. So helping them learn how to communicate and and document things along the way in writing, even though their preference is to communicate verbally, um, is, is sometimes where I would begin so that they understand that, yes, it's good to communicate but you have to be able to also track that and there needs to be accountability. And the way that we get that is by having a document history for parents who may have gotten very upset and maybe not behaved well at, at various points or may have made accusations or uh, things have become very heated. Sometimes just having me come in kind of puts everybody on their best behavior for a little while a little while. And that yeah. gives us time. Yeah, you know, it buys us a little breather. Sure. Uh, while the school kind of susses me out, like, who is this person and what she, you know, what's her agenda? And so I might be coming in and saying, let's, you know, let's talk about what, you know, where we are with this student. What do we know about the needs? How can we get those needs met? I make every effort to keep the temperatures as calm as possible. I never engage in an argument in a meeting Mm -hmm. because I learned over the last dozen years, it doesn't achieve anything anyway. You're not going to convince anybody to change their perspective in an IEP meeting. Most likely, either people don't know what is really going on, and so they're taking Mm -hmm. in information and considering it, or they may have already made up their mind, and they're sure that they're right in which case you can talk until the cows come home and you probably aren't going to change their mind. So you may need to get 
other experts involved. You may need to get some new assessment data. You need to maybe get some new information, new reports, new progress mm-hmm. documentation and things like that to really see where things are going. Because oftentimes people genuinely believe that progress is being made until they see on paper that it's not. Uh, I see. Well, let me ask. So a- again, arguing that point in an IEP meeting isn't going to get you anywhere. You need to have some sort of document that that shows what's happening, even if it's not what people believe up until that point. And then you have a case or an argument, in a sense. Well, you have you have proof, right? You have yeah. some data. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so again, it's not my saying this is what this kid needs. It's not my saying you've done it all wrong. It's looking at well, what is the data showing us? What has worked? What hasn't worked? What have our goals been? Have those been the right goals? Have we been assuming a level of skill that the kid hasn't mastered? So all the instruction we're doing is actually not benefiting the kid because we're aiming too high and we need to back up a little bit, fill in some missing foundational skills, and then move forward from there. Um, Whatever it is, I try to start with the data and then take that data and go forward and decide, well, what is it that we all want for this student? Mm-hmm. And along the way, what I try to do is figure out, um, and, and I explain this to, par- to parents, that there's basically three different categories of participants. There are your friends. There are people who are very much uh, in the same mindset that you are and want the very best for the student and are right. willing to look at all of the information and consider that together. You don't have to convince them to listen to you because they're there. They're really ready to listen. Then you have sort of, there are, you know, often a few foes and, and thankfully these are a small minority, but there are people who have made up their minds. They are not going to change their mind. Nothing you say is going to do any, make any dent. And so you kind of, you're wasting your breath if you're trying to convince them of something. Mm -hmm. And then, then there's this third category of what I call the fence sitters. (laughs) They haven't really made up their mind. They aren't really sure whether what you believe about the student is correct or not, but they aren't close to the the idea of new information. They're willing to consider stuff that, that, that you present. They haven't chosen a side against you or your parent or the student. Um, they haven't decided that they're, that you were, you know, the adversary. Mm-hmm. And so part of what I do in the course of a meeting is try to woo those fence sitters over to the friend side, help them understand and view the student Uh, the way that I understand and the parent understands and views the student. And if there has been hard feelings, if the parent has behaved in a way that was unfortunate, I never blame the parent because, you know, this is their child and they're (laughs) entitled to be emotional. That's right. We are. And they're entitled they're entitled to lose control every once in a while or break down in tears or whatever it is that they've, they've done. And so I, if, if that has been the case, what I want the professionals to understand is that this parent may have lost their cool because mm-hmm. they're so upset about their child or they're so worried about their child or they love the child so deeply and they're just confused about the process. And if I can help everybody come to see the parent in a more compassionate light and have everybody start to, to view the student through the same lens about what the needs may be and how we might go about addressing those needs, that to me is, is a success because I'm pulling more people onto the same side 
um, and, and getting people off of the fence and helping them better function as a team and view each other as co-participants on the same team rather than as, you know, us and them adversarial kind of thing. So you talked about, you know, you're talking about friends, foes, and and fence setters. Hey, that actually, is, they all start with F. But uh, is it, are you at the point now, you know, you've been doing the work for 13 or more years that like, you can walk into a school mm-hmm. and you already pretty much know the culture of that school and you know this is going to be a foe school or this is going to be a friend school. Is it Has it come down to that yet? Well, and here's the thing, because the players change. So who's in charge at a school or in a district can mm-hmm. change every few years. So it's never quite as static as that. I always assume, if I don't know otherwise, that everybody's there to get information. Okay. And then I let their behavior tell me, you know, where they stand. Yeah, if that's and, true. And oftentimes you come in and, and I may be a new participant. They may have no previous history with me. And if the, particularly if things have gotten heated or un, unpleasant in the past, mm-hmm. the parent then comes back with a total stranger. Now they're very much concerned. You know, who is this person? Are they going to, you know, are they going to bring in an attorney next? Are they, you know, Right. Are they gearing up for a lawsuit? You know, how antagonistic is this going to be? And, and oftentimes people come in with very closed body language and very kind of suspicious looks on their faces. And sometimes they come in very forcefully and they try to, you know, lay down the law and this is how it's going to be. And and so what I do, really, honestly, I ask a million questions uh, because... Okay. And I, and I always, because we're in California and we do have a statutory right to audio record IEP meetings, my recommendation is for parents is always audio record the meeting. And, and okay. there's a couple of reasons for that. One, because then it frees you to just participate. Uh, okay. You can't really participate in a conversation if you're simultaneously trying to document it. You're right, all right. So if you're recording the meeting, then you don't have to worry if you remember to write anything down. You don't have to remember how they exactly answered every question. And you're really free to make eye contact and talk to people and listen to what they're saying. And that goes for me as a non-attorney advocate. So we we put the recorder on the table. They put their, the, the district or school site puts their recorder on the table. We turn them on and we forget that they're there. And we just have a good conversation. And I ask a million questions because I want there to be real clarity about what everybody is believing about this student and what they're recommending for this student and how they see the, you know, what they're recommending meeting their students needs. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes just in asking questions, I don't argue. If I disagree about something, I'll just ask follow-up clarification questions. If it, if they're clearly stating something that I completely disagree with, I'll just say, Oh, I see. Uh-huh. I understand. Okay. But I don't get into a philosophical disagreement. If at the end of the meeting there's areas of disagreement, we'll go back with a letter and we'll say, okay, by the way, in the meeting you said this, but we believe this and here's why. And then we'll try to take that um, and resolve that through either an exchange of emails or letters or maybe they'll the school will say, well, we need to have another meeting to come back and talk about fantastic. Let's schedule another meeting and we'll talk about just that area. Mm-hmm. And everybody else doesn't have to be there. We can just resolve that one disagreement or that one area of confusion. 
um, and and try to t- kind of pare down the issues and, and target them a little at a time. You can't necessarily resolve everything within the scope of a single IEP meeting, but the more that you can just ask questions and get answers and get people to talk about what they believe and how they, they see this working for this kid or not, um, I think sometimes that can settle parents' emotions a little bit too because they hear people talking about their child and how they how they view them you know, improving or not, or making progress or not, or benefiting or not. And so at least it kind of gets everybody talking together about the the common concern, which is how are we going to address the needs of this student in this educational setting? Sometimes the information that comes out is difficult to hear. It's not uncommon for me to have a parent who has been told via progress reports and other testing that the student has certain level of mastery in some stuff. Uh-huh. And then maybe we go and get private, uh, you know, independent educational assessments done. And it turns out that the student actually doesn't have any mastery in those areas. Oops. Well, then that's very confusing <laughs> and frustrating right, to parents because they've, they've written goals and they've agreed to interventions and classroom placements and so on based on an assumption about skills that isn't accurate. But as I tell parents, you know, information is agnostic. Data Mm -hmm. is agnostic. Data doesn't care what your educational philosophy is. Data isn't interested in how you feel about it. Data is what it is. And the cool thing about that is because it's agnostic, it isn't on one side or another and it doesn't have an educational philosophy. Sure, it just is. You can look at the data and then make good decisions. It's, it may not be the information you thought, but it's information that's accurate. So now you at least know, oh, we don't know our times tables. Mm-hmm. So what are we going to do about that? Now let's, okay, so the child is in eighth grade and has never learned the times tables. Okay, well, that's good to know. <laughs> Better we know it now than three years from now, yeah, right? Uh, absolutely. So, so obviously we have to deal with that. What does that mean? Well, participating in algebra is going to be a challenge because this child doesn't have the multiplication tables memorized. So now we need to talk about accommodating and supporting the kid in participating in algebra. And we also need to figure out how, when, and who is going to teach this child the times tables if they can learn them at all. It may be that this child has some memory or encoding issues or recall issues that make memorization of the mem- you know multiplication tables mm-hmm. very nearly impossible. And if that's the case, then we need to talk about what are we going to do to support that kid in participating in math at a great appropriate level without the ability to memorize those uh, multiplication tables. Right. You know, maybe we're going to do some remedial work and get those things memorized. Awesome. But maybe nothing we do is going to result in memorizing multiplication tables. And if that's the case, boy, that's important information. It may not be good news, but it's important information for educational planning. Right. And so bad news, good news, it's all news. It may be not the information you thought you were going to get, but it's information. And without information, you can't make good decisions. So even bad news is good news because it tells (laughs) us what we need to know to make decisions for this student. Right. 
Well, that, Sandy, we're coming towards the end of our time here. I was wondering if you could briefly tell us uh, what got you into advocacy, and then what is the best way for somebody to get a hold of you? Sure. So I actually had a teaching credential for elementary education 100 years ago uh, before I had children. And so I was uh, an educator on the other side of the desk, right. so to speak, for, for several years, a number of years. And then I had children, and then one of my children was diagnosed with a di- uh, developmental disability. And so then I had to learn the IEP process from the parent side instead of the professional side of the equation. And it was not as easy as one might think, uh, but it was something that I wasn't afraid to do. And um, I came to understand over the next several years that my background as an educator gave me a tremendous leg up in the process because I already spoke teacher and I already understood why all these people had to be at this meeting. Mm -hmm. And I already knew why assessments were important and why there had to be more than one of them and why lots of people needed to take lots of information and combine it together. And so none of that part of the process threw me for a loop or upset me or overwhelmed me. And I never felt that I wasn't completely entitled to participate actively in every step of that process. What I found out along the way was that Mm -hmm. many parents, if not most parents, don't feel that way. They are completely stunned by the number of people who suddenly have a right to be involved in their child's decision-making. And they were completely overwhelmed by the jargon and all of the paperwork and all of the reports and all of these written documents that suddenly appeared um, with their child's name on them. And they often felt very confused about what was being said about their child. And like loving parents, they wanted all good news to be written down about their child. Mm -hmm. And when the news wasn't always good news, they felt very sad and sometimes very um, emotionally protective and defensive of their child um, because they didn't want all this bad stuff to be written about their kid. And so what, what I began doing informally at first was assisting other parents in understanding the process and understanding what the teacher words meant, what all that educational jargon was really meaning and and why the process was the way it was. And it was one of those gradual things where I was still uh, working in education for an elementary school, a kindergarten through eighth grade school. Um, And then in my off hours at home, I would be emailing friends and answering their questions. And then it wasn't Mm. just friends. It was friends of friends. And then it was cousins of neighbors of grandparents of friends. And (laughs) it just got much more extended out beyond just people that I knew in real life. And one day my husband said to me, well, gosh, you spend almost as much time doing this as you do at work. Could you maybe just quit your job and do this instead? And I literally said, well, I don't know. I've never really (laughs) thought about that. So I've been too busy that doing got it. Me thinking, yeah, that got me thinking. And, and ultimately, 13 years ago, I did quit my job and start doing just advocacy uh, for other families. And that's where it's gone ever since. So people can reach me 
Uh, I have a website, www.epicadvocacy.com. Epic is an um, an uh, an ad, what is it, an acronym? Yeah, you got it. Acronym. <laughs> for <laughs> empowering parents of interesting children. Ah, cool. And I I use the term interesting because there's a whole lot of different um, emotional load attached to words like special or disabled or different or unique. And so I like the word interesting because all of us can be interesting in, in our own way. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just Mm -hmm. a thing. And so in, in empowering parents of other interesting children, I have interesting children. Lots of people have interesting children. And and what I do is meant to empower parents so that they don't need outside help forever. My goal as an advocate is to translate as much of what I know um, about the process and about how to get their child's needs met as possible to the parents so that they can pick up that ball and move it forward mm-hmm. and continue to, to participate in an active and productive way as long as their child needs them to do so. Uh, because I, I'm one person, I can't be in 20 places at once. And it's, you know, it, the more that I can impart what I know and get other parents ramped up and ready to, to move on without help, then that frees me up to assist others. Well, Sandy, thanks so much for your time today. And thank you so much for empowering interesting children. My pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another edition of Special Education Matters. For more information, including show notes, head to our website, csnlg.com slash listen. And if you like what you hear, please uh, consider giving us a review on iTunes. Those reviews bring us lots of happiness. I'm your host, Michael Bull, and we will talk again soon.